I want to begin this morning by showing you a photo. We did this in the 930 service. Now, Kermit the Frog said it's not easy being green, but apparently Frontier, Frontier Airlines is making it a little bit easier. Some of you saw this. A few of you sent it my way. I passed it on to, to my kids. Uh, Frontier Airlines is offering a deal this upcoming week that if your last name is green, you fly for free. Isn't that great? That's green like the color, like we spell our name, and then green with the E on the end, the people that get it wrong. The greens and the greenies can fly for free on Frontier Airlines. What a deal. I passed this on. I sent the, the link to my kids. We have a family text called the Green Fam. I texted it to my children, my wife included, and nobody responded except Wesley, my youngest, my 15-year-old. He said, we're going to London. <laughs> Isn't that great? School, church, football. About 22 different obligations are going to keep us here. We have to go from uh, Wednesday, this Wednesday to next Wednesday, I think, is the stipulation, the restrictions on that. But isn't that cool? Uh, But long before, long before Frontier Airlines came on the scene, Jesus said, go. And Jesus wants us to be a people of movement, a people of adventure. And I said to our 930, I want to say it to you. I'll probably say it a couple of times today. If we're bored If this thing called church is boring, we're doing it wrong. Now, I'm not talking about the sermons, okay? Y'all can sit through some boring materials from time to time, right? When Nick or Daniel or John or one of the other guys preaches, is that? Yeah. But I'm talking about this adventure with Jesus. He says go. And as you're hearing us talk about, we talked about our vision last week. And to recap, um, Nick and Lauren already have talked to you about it, but it's it's found in Galatians 5-6. A couple of years ago, there were some leaders, there were nine of us. We were uh, in a cabin in the woods and we were praying just before the Lord. And we were praying for a new year to get started in the work that we wanted God to do. We wanted it to be God's work. And as we came back together and sat around a circle, there was kind of a movement happening in our midst. And I just feel like it was God, the hand of God on nine different uh, leaders. And we, we just, we were moved by Galatians 5, 6, B. Uh, the church was uh, discussing and arguing about traditions and rituals and things that used to mean a lot to people of old. And, and they concluded that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And so that's what we did last week. We talked about what a church could look like if we honed in on, on what really matters. And if we said, that doesn't count, that doesn't count, that doesn't count. But faith, being a place, being a people where people could find faith. And hold on to the fat faith and grow that faith and then see it expressed in love. That's the kind of people that we want to be. And we talked about faith. I told you last week that people that teach, I'll own it. But people like me who stand up in front of churches, it's kind of fuzzy. And we have some really misconceptions about faith. Faith is not a spooky force. And it's not a special formula. There's something about us where we want that. We want it to be something mysterious that we tap into like magic or paganism and we can twist God into being the God that we want or that special formula thing, you know, eat right, exercise, meditate, pray twice a day, come to church, read your Bible. What is the formula? And all, every time we think it's a formula, anything in life, we want to figure out the formula. What's the pattern to Pac-Man? What's the formula to faith? And I'll do that and I'll score. I'll succeed. I'll win. And we talked about last week that we don't want, I don't want you um, to, to get off the way, to follow a different path, and then to be disappointed. Faith, we define, we let the scripture define it. It's a paraphrase from Hebrews 11. But we said faith is confidence that hope so will be so. 
And everybody in this room is a person of hope. But everybody in this room, your confidence wavers, doesn't it? Some people walk in a room and they can own it. And they look you in the eyes and they glad hand and pat backs and shake hands and can seem so confident, but we never know underneath the surface, do we? And some people can be in a room with you and they can't even look at you. They're looking down and you can see the timidity. You can see the lack of confidence that they have. But faith, according to Scripture, is confidence that hope so will be so. And as a pastor, as a parent of three, and a guy that did campus ministry with college students for so long, and we're welcoming some of our students back, and hopefully uh, they'll be back in full force next weekend. But as working with students and young people, I'm keeping my eye on our culture. And I, I talked to you last week about how people are losing faith or leaving the faith because they've signed God's name to promises He never made. And for us, don't put your hope on an event or a circumstance or even an answer to prayer. Fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12. He's the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. Let us fix our eyes on Him. He's the one who said faith can move mountains. He's the one that can work in our lives if we put our faith in Him. But it's difficult at times because we sign His name to promises He never made us. Hebrews 11 tells us the ancients, that they were commended by their faith. I pray that we would be as well. Not a spooky spooky force, not a special formula, It's confidence that hope so will be so, and we find it in Jesus. And we talked about love. How important is love? Let's just say it now, because we're a Jesus church, we're never going to stop talking about love. Is that okay with you? How important, how powerful is love? When Jesus, Scripture tells us, John tells us, God is love, and Jesus is God, and He came as God. It got Him arrested and killed. So Jesus is love, and when Jesus came on the scene, his first public ministry is a baptism at the River Jordan, and the Trinity, the triune, unified God, was all on display as the heavens opened up. The Spirit descended like a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke over the Son. Anybody remember, this is my Son, whom I love. That's this gospel message that we never want to grow tired of preaching, that it's a message of love. Anybody feel like we need love today? Take a look at this figure, this person, Amy Winehouse. I would consider her to be a talent, a great talent of this generation and unique in what she offered the musical world. Uh, A year or so ago, I went and watched a documentary on her life. A lot of you know that her life ended in tragedy. And in this documentary, I went and I had this naive hope, kind of like when you go see Titanic for the first time, like... You know how it ends, but you're hoping for something different. And I knew that as I sat there and I learned more about her life, how she was brought up and what her hopes and aspirations were, what she put her confidence, her hope so, that will be so, how she lived her life and she battled drugs and alcohol and she would eat a meal and quietly she would retire to a bathroom not wanting anybody to know and she would expel her meal. She was tormented her soul deep down by unhappiness and misery. And in this telling scene in her, this movie about Amy Winehouse, she tells the viewer about the pain that came into her life related to her parents' divorce and how her dad walked out. And she said that a part of her died that day. 
the ability to love and to be loved it was never overcome. Another famous face that ended in tragedy, this is Tupac Shakur. And Tupac in his song, Dear Mama, talks about losing his dad, the world he grew up in. He lost his dad early to death. And he says in the lyrics of this phenomenal song, autobiographical song, he says that my anger doesn't let me feel for a stranger. This thing of love, can I say to you today, you cannot overestimate its power and its potency in a life. And when you and I experience it, then and only then are we able to express it. But in its absence, it's tragic. And the gospel message, this love, is God personified in the person of Jesus. And his message from the very beginning is don't do a bunch of good works to be loved. You are loved. Now, get after some good works. But you are loved. It's not a way to perform to get there. It's a way to respond to the Father's love for you. So here's our passage. Acts chapter 9. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn there. We're not going to give you long. Acts chapter 9. If you have a Bible in front of you or want to grab a pew Bible, you can do that. Acts 9. And we'll put it on the screen in a moment. You may want to have your Bible opened up in front of you. Acts 9 and verse 31 is where we're going. Did y'all get there, you Bible turners? We're watching you. Here we go. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Leave that up for a few minutes. I want us to talk about this, some of the phrases of what Scripture, uh, how Scripture defines the early church. The early church, we'll look at in a moment, was not without problems. But look at this. Look how good. Now, consider the first three words. So, the church. If you and I say that in our day, that can mean a lot, right? If you start a sentence, so the church. Well, down at the church. Hey, the church down there. That may not end uh, so well. That might not be a good conversation but this is so good so beautiful so the church now what comes to people's minds today when they hear the word church what do people think of it could vary that could we could have as many variations as we do people in the room but i think what's a consensus among us is that when we think of church we think of it as a place that you go or a a service that you attend but with jesus it's more so much more One time, it's one of those stories about Jesus that on the surface seems rude. You don't really get it and you got to dig deeper. But Jesus one time was with some folks in a circle and some people were outside the circle. His popularity was growing. People wanted to be with him. And there were people outside the circle who uh, said, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. And Jesus said, hey, my my mother and my brothers are here. These are my mother and my brothers. The ones who do the will of God are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And Jesus was beginning to show us that yes, there's a biological family, but there's something on a different plane and parallel that's even more noble, it's higher, and that is a spiritual family that you and I wouldn't see church as a place that we go or a service that we would attend, but we would see it as a spiritual family. We have a father. And we then, therefore, are brothers 
and sisters, well, what kind of family should we be? What kind of family should we be? What kind of family do you have? What kind of family do you come from? If you were to describe your family in five words, how would you describe your family? Twitter world did this a few months ago. Um, I pulled some of these. Describe your family in five words. These are real people giving real language to describing their family. I like some of them. They are related to me. A living, breathing, walking circus. More than a bit dysfunctional. Circle of strength and love. Consistently doing mundane things together. The reason why I drink. Most aren't eligible for parole. Sucking the life out of me. Emotions are never discussed. Not great at board games. We love our mobile devices. Harmless lunatics, most of them. Nuttier than an ADHD squirrel. Who ate all the Pringles? Usually, I'm the wrong one. Old beefs and old grudges. People related to me genetically. They're creepy and they're kooky. Da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da. 9.30 was a little slow on that one. How do you describe your family? How would someone describe God's family? If a church is not merely a human institution or bureaucracy about man-made power and methods, if there's something higher to it, and if it's a family with a father and we're brothers and sisters, how should we be described? Just a few verses past Galatians 5, 6 that talks about faith expressing itself in love. It says this in Galatians 5, 13. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, see the family language. You were called to be free. And th- let me stop there. If it feels legalistic, if it feels joyless, if it feels like an obligation, can I tell you, we're doing it wrong. We're not following Jesus. No wonder some people want to leave faith. I would want to leave that as well. But the gospel comes in, and you hear me say it often, not my words originally, I'm quoting from somebody, but the gospel is such good news about God's love for you that you have nothing to prove, nothing to fear, and nothing to hide. We're called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in humble or humbly in love. The world watched a man take his life in prison less than 24, more, just more, more than 24 hours ago who apparently indulged his flesh, who got so deep into fleshly sin that he thought women and girls were objects for his gratification. That's not a way to live. Fellows, especially look at me. That may seem to bring you freedom and you may brag to your friends. That's not a way to live. That's called lust and it ends badly. Moments of gratification, but it's not love. And God has given us this gift that's so much deeper and so much more freeing. And so let us live our lives. Let us be the kind of faith family that we walk and we serve one another humbly in love. Let's clarify for a moment. Somebody may need this. But you know, you can serve You can serve, but you can serve without being humble. And you can serve, and you can serve without doing it in love. Um, No references to anyone local, 
but I have through the years observed someone on social media that serves. And this woman, boy, she serves. She does a lot of great good deeds, but uh, she seems so joyless. It seems like such a burden. She seems so arrogant. It seems like she's putting people down and she knows the only way. And it just, it doesn't seem like it's humble service in love. And Fonder Church, can I call me and you together? Let's be this. Nick got it right. We do good works to be seen, but it doesn't stop there. When we see our good works, now it's, it's interesting, Jesus taught what is a, a paradox. We're going to get into this in weeks ahead, but uh, don't do your good deeds to be seen by other people, Matthew chapter 6. But right before that, Matthew chapter 5, he said, do your good works so that you can be seen, so that those good works can be seen to glorify your Father who is in heaven. We need to move away from glorying in ourselves or in this church to humble servanthood. That's the type of family, a faith family that we can be. So, Scripture in Acts 9.31, we read it together. It says that so the church, so the church what? It says the next phrase, that they, they had peace. And some of the English translations tell us that they enjoyed peace. Look, what, look how uh, the gospel is described in Ephesians 6.15. It says this, talks about our feet. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of what? The gospel of peace. How could they enjoy peace? How could they have peace? They did it not because they uh, were people who were clean and polished and had it together. They were messy. They were creepy and they were kooky. But they were loved. They were forgiven. They had a big God. And so they were able to enjoy peace. It's interesting that there was moments of peace. And that means that there were times when they were fighting when they weren't getting along, when they were at each other. Can that be true? Can we let each other down? Can we at times turn against each other or turn away from each other? God gives a gift to the church, to a spiritual family. And when this gift is employed, when it's discovered and deployed, we are healthier and vibrant. In fact, I would say we are downright irresistible and we will know peace there'll be peace in this room peace in this place peace among our relationships peace among our leaders and you know when you have peace don't you let's put it the opposite way you know when you don't have peace don't you you know when you walk home and there's tension in that room don't you you know when you go in a room if there's tension i mediated um, a meeting between two pastors a few months ago they're on the same team and one pastor sat here and one pastor sat there and look it was very passionate for me because it's been personal to me because I've been there and I looked at one and said you understand that this man this brother in Christ doesn't feel supported by you you understand there's tension and he doesn't feel like you are for him when you don't look at him when you don't talk to him when you don't show him respect, when you're not supporting him and encouraging him and holding up his arms because you're on the same team and you're in a battle together and you're in a family, a spiritual family. And when you're in a family, you should know that people in your family are for you. You agree with that? You may get a lot wrong. There's no perfect marriage and no perfect family. I got a few of mine sitting on the front row, not perfect. But they need to know always that I'm for them. 
And it matters, and that's when there's peace. So here's the gift God gives us. Do you know this? That the church should be organized and operated as a family of people using their gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, that talks about this very thing. God is not a God of disorder or confusion, but He's a God of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. The spiritual family of faith, brothers and sisters with one Father, if we're going to have peace and move away from confusion, we'll need to have people that get off the sidelines and get into the game. People, oh, like you, who would discover their gift and then use it. Do you know you have a gift? If you're in Christ, you have a spiritual gift. Some of us have a few gifts. Um, But everybody in Jesus, the truth of the Scripture promises that in the Spirit, by His grace, He gives us a gift. Now, this is different than your Enneagram score. Uh, I did this at the earlier service, but I'm going to count to three, and you tell us your number, okay? Everybody knows what they are on the Enneagram, right? One, two, three... Seven, yes, thank you. Sevens always speak loudly. I'm surprised sevens even listening to the sermon. They should be on their phone, like organizing a party at two o'clock today or something. But yeah, I'm a seven. I love my sevens. Uh, make sure, you're, if you're in a small group, make sure you got a seven, okay? Uh, but what's your number? Here's what I want to say to you. Those numbers apparently, especially for our young people, are really important. People are identifying themselves and their friends by their number. And I, I want to say kind of pigeonholing themselves if they're not careful. But this, this spiritual gift, look, if you know your Enneagram number, I'm telling you something far better is to know your spiritual gift. Um, I'm going to jet through this, but Scripture mentions in a few different places some of the spiritual gifts that God gives. One of them is helps. You know that some people among us have the gift of helps. I love people that have the gift of helps for obvious reasons. They help me. But look, when, if you have the gift of help, God has given you a special ability to move things along and to help and to assist people. They'll feel supported. The mission will move forward. And these are behind the scenes people. Most of the time, they fly under the radar. Joshua is an example in the life of Moses. Some people have the gift of hospitality. Look, let's clarify because hospitality is misunderstood in our day. We think sometimes that hospitality is making your home look great. That's not the gift of hospitality. What's greater than making your home look great is what? Is making people feel welcome. And that's the gift of hospitality. There's the gift of shepherding where you can look and you can help and consider someone, help someone consider their spiritual well-being. Shepherding is similar uh, to a gift of pastoring. Young Timothy had this gift and Paul was able to say, hey, the things that you have heard from me, uh, you, you teach other people who will teach faithful people, who will teach others also. It's multiplication and multiplication happens uh, as we shepherd one another. Look at me for a second. The church, our church, uh, we don't have enough pastors to pastor the people, so we need people to pastor the people and you're the people. And so anybody that has the gift of shepherding, that's where we're stronger um, as a church. I went this week to visit with a man. I've been with him a couple of times now. 28-year-old man, gifted, good-looking, glamorous guy. Everything in the world going for him. He had a stroke at 28. And what I love is what I see is that some of you know him and love him and you're there for him. And a couple of you are shepherds. That's your gift. And you look out for people and you care for people and their spiritual well-being. That's the gift of shepherding. Some Some people have the gift of encouragement. The gift of encouragement is you believe in people's potential. I love the story in Acts where there are some characters named Saul who becomes Paul. There's a guy named John Mark and there's a guy named Joseph. Not that Joseph, but another Joseph. Several Josephs in the scripture. But this Joseph is given a nickname. His nickname is, anybody know it? 
Barnabas, and Barnabas means the son of encouragement. And what does an encourager do? They don't live in the balcony where things are dark and dirty and dingy, where, they, where you keep the old ugly appliances. They live on the balcony. They're on the balcony and they see the, they see the parade. They see the profess, processional. They see the onward march and they believe in you and their potential. And we need encouragers. We need some sons and daughters of, of encouragement who will speak life into us and see the potential. John, Mark, and Paul, Scripture tells us in Acts, had a conflict. And Paul thought this, and John Mark thought this. Remember, there are no perfect leaders. There are none. And this guy thought this, and this guy thought this. And Paul's like, I'm done with John Mark. Peace out. Hasta la visa, persona non grata. And and Barnabas, Joseph, the son of encouragement, said, you know what? I'm with John Mark. I love you, Paul. God's going to use you. Understatement of of the year. But I see something in John Mark, and that's what a gift of encouragement does. It sees someone and their potential. There's all kinds of gifts. There's the gift of administration. Uh, Jethro, anybody heard of Jethro? Moses' father-in-law, and he looked at Moses and he said, you're gonna wear yourself out. You will be burned out. Anybody doing too much? You're gonna get burned out. You probably need an administrator. If you're not able to say no, you're doing too much, you're about to burn out, you need someone with the gift of administration. God gives his church that. And Jethro said, hey, Moses, you can't, you can't judge everything. You can't be the leader for the whole nation of Israel. Break this up into 50s and 100s and get other leaders. And that's the gift of administration. Someone, a woman or a man who has that gift can bring order out of chaos. And there's a leadership gift like a man named Nehemiah who heard um, about, the, about the city of Jerusalem and the wall and he had a burden. And what did Nehemiah do? He moved heaven and earth to get to Jerusalem and he brought the resources despite the obstacles. He got there and he rallied the troops and it's remarkable, everybody had a job. Listen church, nobody just sat on the sidelines. Everybody had a task to do and they got at it. Remember Sanballat tried to get Nehemiah off the wall and he's like, I will not come down. He was focused and that's what a leader does. A person with a le- special gift of leadership has that ability to get things done. God gives so many gifts. He gives the gift of wisdom. Maybe somebody has that. Uh, I hope somebody on our team has the gift of wisdom. I'm looking for it. We got some wise people, but I used to work with a guy who had the gift of wisdom, and I would be confused. I would have a bunch of things going up on up in my head, 120 different thoughts, and I would walk into this guy's office, and he would just make it about one thing. He would see what's the essence of it all, what really matters. And that's what the the gift of wisdom is able to do, to look through the stupidity of it all and the cobwebs of confusion and to say, this is what matters. This is the wise thing. And we need people with wisdom. It's why we're calling you to get into a group so that you can live with greater wisdom. Let people speak into your life. Author Larry Crabb says, everybody has blind spots and everybody has broken places. And you and I need to live in community so that we can see this fleshed out. There's a gifts, and God gives gifts to the body of Christ. Do you know your gift? Will you explore that gift and see how God uses it and let it bless other people? This passage tells us that they went on in the fear of the Lord. Now, it doesn't seem like you're enjoying the gospel, enjoying life, if you have a fear. This idea, this fear of God is one of worship. One of the Greek words, it has a prefix in the New Testament that is uh, our word mega. 
And mega is a word that we use uh, to describe malls and churches and soft drinks. Mega is this invitation for us to see a big God. I believe that one of the consequences of low living is a small view of God. If you're not walking, if we as a church are not walking with fear of God, with the fear of the Lord, we have a small God. And when we have a small God, we wake up in the morning and all of our problems seem a lot bigger. And your mood, if your God is small, your mood will be dictated by your circumstances. If your God is small, when you get a nudge of nobility, of something you should do, a faith step you should take, you shrink back. Why be generous? Because I have got to count on myself for all the financial resources. Why should I share my faith? I can't do that. And you shrink back from taking the step of faith and expressing it in love because your view of God is low. C.S. Lewis in his Narnia series has this Aslan this, that represents Christ and a little girl, some children come to him and uh, tell him that he looks bigger and he looks back at them and he lets them know that He's not any bigger. It's just as they've gotten older, as these kids have gotten older, He has gotten bigger. And He is the figure of Christ. You see, as we grow, if we grow, every year our God can get bigger. Now God is God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changing His size. But God can grow. He can grow to us to be a bigger God. Look, if it's boring, we're getting it wrong. If it's boring, we're counting on us. If it's boring, we're not taking steps of faith. If it's boring, our view of God needs to be bigger. And this church grew, the church grew, this faith family elevated their conception, their, their faith in God and who he, who he was, who He is. And a big God is bigger than any problem in this room. And I don't know who needs to hear it, but you got up today and yes, you're in church and yes, you get credit for that. But you're shrinking back. You're not walking into that open door. You think it's all dependent on you. And will you move forward with the fear of God? He is a big God. And just as you and I need a big God, we need, I'm not going to say a small God, but we need a near God. And did you notice in Acts 9, 31, they went on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of of the Holy Spirit. Just as you need to know that God is big, you need to know that God is near. He's the God of comfort. And Paul would tell the church at Corinth, the Corinthian church, that God is the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. And those who have been comforted are called to comfort those with the comfort that they have been given. That's a mouthful. But that's us. That's you and that's me living together in community, of getting out of rows and into circles, and circling up into groups and sharing life with each other. That makes some of you nervous, doesn't it? What number is that on the Enneagram? If you're nervous to get in a group, definitely not seven. But you're afraid that you're going to have to share life. Listen, you don't have to do anything, but it's a step forward if you do. In this church, it says, the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they live together in intentional community, wanting people to see God in them. And look, there are times 
when you're the person who has the need. But there are times when you show up to your group and you circle up with people and other people might need you. Be willing to be that. Be willing to be needy. Not too needy, some of you. I don't want you in my group. Be willing to be needy. But also be willing to meet the needs of other people. Our values flow from this passage, from these ideas. It's threefold. As we're a people that find faith, grow faith, express it in love, we would enjoy the gospel, gospel enjoyment. We would purposely move toward people, intentional community, and that we would, our lives would not be about ourselves. Look, young people, if you get married one day, you're about to get married. Let me tell you, fellas, what that young woman doesn't want. She doesn't want you holding her hands and just looking in her eyes and telling her how amazing she is. Well, maybe sometimes. But what she wants is you to pull her close and point out there and tell her where you're going to take her. And tell her that it's more than just your own fulfillment. That there's something grander and better and larger out there. And you'll live together on a mission. And a church needs that. And this scripture tells us that in Acts 9.31 it says they multiplied. I want to be careful of this. I want you to hear my heart behind this. Some of you are going to roll your eyes because I say this a lot. But I know some of you are new today. We don't want to be a large church. We want to be a loving church. We're not trying to be huge. We want to be healthy. But what do healthy things do? If you got a plant, don't think about a cactus, but you got like a plant plant. What do you do? You put that plant in the window or you plant it outside and you sunlight and water, nutrients. You go down to the landscape, you get some fertilizer, you throw it in there and you, it, it grows if it's healthy, doesn't it? And you and I will, will grow. What could God do in Fondren? What kind of light could we be? What kind of city on a hill could we be if we had a mission and we went hard after it for the needs of other people? History lesson quickly, 1917, the Soviets took over Russia. I'm sorry, the communists took over Russia. And they did not make Christianity illegal. History shows us that what they did was they made it illegal for the church to do good works. So the church, legally imposed upon it, could no longer fulfill its prophetic, historic mission of feeding the hungry, inviting in the orphan, welcoming the stranger, educating the children, and caring for the sick. And history is very clear about Russia and what happened to the church. It went underground, and within 60 to 70 years, it was largely irrelevant. I had a seminary professor, a church historian, who taught his class one time. I was there. He said that what Lenin devised, diabolically devised and designed, the church has done by default. And we have lost our zeal and fervency to serve other people. In the midst of buildings and budgets and preaching and programs and songs and such, all are important, all are a part of it. But the mission of the church is outside itself for us to go, for us to find faith and express it in love, for us to circle up and be together, for you to get out of a pew and into a circle, and for us to learn to live intentionally with each other. But we have a mission, and that's what the church has lost today. 1987, anybody around in 87? I was in college. I remember for a few days, there was a story that captured the consciousness of the nation. An 18-month-old little girl named Jessica McClure 
was playing in the backyard of her aunt's home in Midland, Texas. And she fell in a hole. And that aunt and soon the parents and a lot of people discovered that it wasn't just a hole, it was a well. And it was some 32 feet deep, but it was only 8 inches in circumference. 18-month-old little girl, that's a tight squeeze. And it's freezing cold and it's dark and there's issues of oxygen and life is hanging in the balance. And there was the police department and the fire department and the paramedics and the doctors and the nurses. There was engineers and oil drillers. There was a guy who showed up who was born without collarbones. And he told the professionals there, I, I, I can twist, I can contort, I can get in a small space. And they, no. But they drilled. These oil drillers were particularly helpful. And they drilled this um, parallel shaft and with a, a, a 90 degree angle, they cut in and they used this technique uh, new at the time called water jet cutting. And they salvaged little Jessica McClure, 18 months old, and they were able to bring her up before death uh, got her. And you think of all the people. I remember that story. All the rescue workers, all the people. And somebody later on a, a talk show said, how many rescue workers does it take? And I think we forget as a church that we're in the rescue business. That there are people who are lost and they're lonely. And like Amy Winehouse or Tupac Shakur, it could be the talented people, the beautiful people. It could be the prophets among us. It could be the well-spoken. It could be the famous. It could be people that receive fame and acclaim. But in the midst of us, we forget how many people does it take to rescue, to save a soul. The church has a mission. How many people does it take? A pastor friend of mine, I just visited him in Colorado a few weeks ago. We sat down. He says, Robert, when the church is blessing a community, you look at individual lives and it takes, he says, about 12 to 20 bumps to influence. I'm like, what do you mean by bumps? Just points of love and contact, of blessing, of hospitality, of, of, of a word well spoken of an act, a good deed. We were talking about spiritual gifts earlier. You know, there's a woman named Tabitha. This is in Acts 9. If anybody have your Bible open, you can check me on this. Acts 9, 36, uh, just a few verses down. There's a woman named Tabitha, and her name is translated to be Dorcas. Not a name I would want, but Dorcas. It says this about Dorcas. Anybody looking at it? It says that she was always doing good and helping the poor. Some people have the gift of service. We got some Dorcases in the room. Lead us. Lead, and, yeah. Lead us as we seek to love and bless and serve others. Let's pray together. As we're praying, one last slide. We're sort of praying. One last slide. It's a wish that I have as your pastor. This is my wish for you. That you would take a courageous step of obedience that will cost you something. So it may be just stepping into a group. Just stepping into a small group. It could be being a voice in your group of growing deeper. One group I know, they're, they're talking about not just opening their Bibles around coffee every week, but taking on a mission, taking on a group of people that they could bless and serve. For some of you, it's a simple step of baptism. We got some people really mature, who've never taken that first step. And some of you are new in your faith. I know a, a guy that prayed to receive Christ on Thursday. 
Maybe it's a step of faith into the waters of of the baptism. To take a courageous step of faith that would cost you something. So that we could have story after story in this room, in this place. The faith expressing itself in love is what counts. Father, I pray for us. Lord, as we sing about your spirit being welcome here and welcome in our lives, God, I pray... I pray, Paracletus, that your spirit would walk alongside us, would dwell in us, would manifest gifts in us, and that the lazy or the bitter or the bored among us would be enlivened with the spirit of adventure. Let's go to London. Let's go follow Jesus. Let's live with a spirit of boldness. And God, you have given your people something, something beyond sitting and soaking. So let this life of adventure be lit in us. Give us encouragers. Give us administrators. Give us leaders. Give us prophets. Give us healers. Give us teachers. Givers. Let peace reign in this place. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Stand today and let's close as we sing. This altar is open and we can pray for you today.